Welcome back to the album years, and this is going to be part two of 1983. Now, Tim, we're getting to the point now where we could almost done a whole season yeah. on one of these years, couldn't we? In fact, maybe that's what we should have done in the first place. It's <laughs> just done like a six episodes on a year, and that would have been one season, and then six episodes on another year. Because it's hard, isn't it? I mean, the, I don't know how we did it, frankly, because, I mean, I'm looking at the list of, of you know, records... For this year, 1983, and it's, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that we're already on to a second episode because there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It partly depends on the year that we're dealing with as well. And you're right, you know, you could do entire seasons on certain years because they were kind of important musically and culturally and there's a lot to talk about. The next category you had on the list, just picking up from where we left off, and by the way, there's been about a month between when Tim and myself (laughs) recorded the previous episode and this one. I was in a hotel room in Chile last time we talked about 1983. I'm now in a hotel room in Zurich and a month has gone by. So forgive us if we don't remember exactly what we talked about. But I think we concluded by talking about the sort of you know the rise of the the so-called stadium bands and the next category you've got is kind of a, a catch-all category you've got elsewhere mm-hmm. and i think what you're talking about this is just is is albums that don't really they don't really fit into anything and i think again that's kind of a sign of the times in a way it's becoming harder perhaps to to categorize we didn't discuss the eyeless and gaza and ben watt and the cherry red era and one kind of realization i came to um, a couple of weeks ago really was that none of these cherry red artists i mean cherry red at the time i think was as much a revolutionary label as 4ad and factory but it seemed to have even more of that kind of psychedelic hippie ethos even though it was in a post-punk era and what i kind of realized was that bands like eyeless and gaza really couldn't have fitted on 4AD or Factory. They weren't quite as cultivated or as cool in some respects. And so Cherry Red, in a way, was a marvellous label for ragged outsiders. And I'm saying, you know, that's a kind of perception I've come to relatively recently, whereas if I'd have listened to them at the time, these artists were all a part of that post-punk maelstrom of creativity. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I did skip over the cherry red category. I think I meant to come back to that and I'd forgotten that we hadn't. But yes, I mean, they're they're a label very beloved to us, of course. And one, I think you agree with me, one of our favourite albums is is Ben Watt's first solo record, North Marine Drive, which is so beautiful and so simple and so DIY that it seems to almost, I mean, again, we talk about this a lot, an album that doesn't seem to belong to the era it was made in. It doesn't belong to this era. It didn't belong to that era. It almost wouldn't have been out of place being released in the early 70s or the late 60s. Um, No. Alongside some of John Martin's classic records, I think, which were big influences on him. But, But at the same time, even as I'm saying that, it has a DIY naivety which belongs completely to the early 80s and the post-punk era. And Eilis and Gaza in a group that, that just seemed to, to never belong, uh, in the best possible sense of that phrase, they never belonged to the era they were, they were operating in, and they still don't. And I think that's why their records still sound good. They're, they're not bound by the technology or the culture or the zeitgeist at all, which must have been very frustrating for them at the time, you know, to struggling to get press, struggling to get attention. Um, but luckily there was, as you say, there was this label Cherry Red and Mike Allway, particularly a very famous A&R guy that was prepared to go out on a limb and sign these kind of misfits uh, in a way, weren't they? Yeah. Well, I think what I liked about Eilis and Gaza and what I think was probably an influence on early No Man to an extent was that they could and would go anywhere. There's kind of a psychedelic sense of experiment. So they could go from um, a pop song to a 12-minute drone, to a real post-punk chaotic piece, to a beautiful autumnal ballad influenced by 17th century folk. And I think one of the things that was likeable about them is that they didn't seem to have 
very many boundaries, really. And when I was saying that I didn't think these artists were, were cool enough in a way for 4AD and Factory, who had very, very strict views of how artists were presented and how the packaging looked, you know, and in both cases, I absolutely adored it. You know, 4AD and Factory artwork remains amongst my favourite uh, favourites, and, and 4AD and Factory bands, some of them remain amongst my favourites. But I really liked this Home for Misfits that Cherry Red was. And an interesting fact is that Momus, who ended up on Cherry Red on L, was originally signed to 4AD with uh, the Happy Family. And apparently Eilis and Gaza were offered a contract with 4AD if they would change their approach. And Kevin Hewick actually was originally signed to Factory and in his own words got dropped because he wasn't cool enough. Because... He was coming from sort of Zeppelin, Roy Harper, Peter Hamill, Tim Buckley. He had really quite eclectic, mostly 60s, 70s influences. And although his music does have the real anger that fits into a kind of post-punk singer-songwriter and, and stripped down arrangements that almost help it fit in with what Billy Bragg was doing at the time. You know, often it's just distorted electric guitar and his voice. But he was coming from a different... Tradition, And then it was kind of interesting that, yeah, before Such Hunger for Love, he got um, booted off Factory. And of course, he, he did, I think, audition for um, Joy Division after Curtis's death, or at least he, he did some work with uh, the nascent New Order. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Kevin Hewitt fitting in with, with Factory. I think he is the quintessential misfit, as indeed are Arliss and Garza. But it's interesting because you mentioned the fact that Arliss and Garza were not afraid to, to do, you know, something relatively direct in terms of pop, you know. But I think unlike bands like ABC uh, or The The, who we'll come on to in a moment, who came from... Uh, a very post-punk DIY low budget kind of like level making records at that level getting signed to big labels and suddenly having big budgets and producers like Trevor Horn at their disposal Eilis and Garza never had that and none of the bands on Cherry Red ever had that they were making records for very very small budgets but as you say they were in a way I think Momus too in a way mm. um, not perhaps not at this time but certainly on some of the later records like, records like Tender Pervert and Don't Stop the Night aspiring in a way to sound like big glossy pop but falling short because simply they didn't have the budgets or, or the technical know-how perhaps yeah. but making really compelling records anyway you know again this thing about while you're trying to achieve one thing, you kind of accidentally achieve another yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. This is just no way in anybody's <laughs> mind is this, you know, chart-worthy pop music. But maybe that's what they're hearing in their head when they're doing it. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's what we were doing in No Man in the early <laughs> days too. Look, that, that was pure pop gold, Stephen. Perhaps, but perhaps we were deluded. Perhaps to everyone else it was... Do these do these fools really think they're making pop music here, you know? Um, and I think that's lovely when you hear a band like Alice and Gaza or, or someone like that attempting, you know, their idea of mainstream pop. And it's disastrously, you know, incompetent on that basis and in that context. Mm. But it's wonderful anyway. So let, let's come on to, um, I just mentioned them, you know, Three of my favourite bands of all time released their debut albums this year. And these are bands which did make the transition from the sort of DIY indie level to being on major labels with big producers. So we've got... Actually, no, that's not necessarily true of Tears for Fears. Tears for Fears made their, their debut album, this record, The Hurting. The The, Matt Johnson, who'd been with 4AD, recording under his own name, now signed to CBS Records, or I think he was signed actually to Some Bizarre, wasn't he, who had a, a deal through... Essentially, he was on CBS anyway, making his debut record as The The, Soul Mining, and Mike Scott, who'd been on various, been in various indie bands, um, signing to Ensign and making The Waterboys debut record. Now, all of these bands are very different, of course. I wonder which of these is probably closest to your heart after all these years, Tim. I'm going to guess... Probably the the. Yeah, you're right. And and I think what's interesting about the the is that if you listen to what Matt Johnson was doing only two years earlier, Burning Blue Soul, the album that's on 4AD, he was as radical and as experimental and as borderline unlistenable as many people might find the more out there moments of Eilis in Gaza. So it was really interesting that without kind of compromising 
the mood of his music without compromising the kind of bedsit lyrical intensity. He managed to make the transition from very experimental post-punk artist to viable 80s pop artist. And I think that's quite impressive. It's interesting what you just mentioned there, that that's all still in there, isn't it? Yeah. You can still hear that. You can still hear the experimentation. But it's somehow got this pop sheen to it. It's, he's got the hooks. He's got the melodies. He's got the pop songs that are going to get him on top of the pops. Mm. And the same is true of, of, the, of the Tears for Fears, The Hurting. I mean, lest we forget, the debut Tears for Fears album had Mad World on it, which has become one of their most popular songs. Um, but, But at the same time, if you listen to that record, these are guys that have grown up with early XTC records. These are, these are their reference points. Um, Peter Gabriel's three and four. These are big records for, for Roland and Kurt at this time. This is what they've, you know, they, this is where they've come from. And yet somehow they've made a record which has more of a pop sensibility than all of those records put together. And immediately they're having massive, massive top 10 hit singles. Um, and they were never cool. And I think maybe that's part of it. They never had that kind of baggage weighing them down. They could go straight for the pop jugular. But at the same time, you can hear, in much the same way that you can hear in Soul Money, you can still hear all of those more impressive, experimental, avant-garde influences too. Yeah. That's a hard thing to pull off, isn't it? It is. And, and I remember at the time when they did interviews, they were talking about people like Laurie Anderson and Peter Gable 3 and 4. They were mentioning a lot of the people you'd suggested. And you could hear it in the music and uh, and they'd very you know naturally use those influences within it and uh, probably the hurting you know might be my favorite tears for fears album actually because there's a kind of raw electronic edge to it and mad world is, is a fantastic piece although interestingly enough i really like the um the roland orzabal led version of the band elemental that era i thought was quite underrated as well well i'm sure we'll come on to that when we yeah. when we I'm, I'm a massive fan of elemental and, yeah. and raul and the kings of spain yeah exactly. but we'll come on to that soul mining you know obviously the the haven't been the most prolific over the years but this is another record which i think has really stood the test of time hasn't it it still sounds like nothing else he's he sounds quite angry doesn't he he's always sounded a bit angry and a bit pissed off (laughs) matt johnson even on these early records yeah but he's also he's also making records which you know they've got a lot in common in a way with what Trevor Horn and, and Steve Lipson are doing over at ZTT. They sound big. He's obviously yeah. very, very in love with the possibilities of technology and lush, epic, um, unapologetically, you know, pompous production. But but much like the, the Tears for Fears record, it's still got that edge from post-punk and, um, and some of these artists like Peter Gabriel. I mean, how, you know, how much, how important are those... Because we talk about them quite a lot, those early Peter Gabriel records and and some of the early Kate Bush records, they seem to have been quietly so influential on this kind of period of time, the sort of mid-80s. They're so ubiquitous in their influence and you can hear it in so many of these artists. Or am I imagining it? I don't... No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, because obviously I bought a lot of these albums when they came out and I remember being absolutely blown away with Gabriel 3, Gabriel 4, with Kate Bush the Dreaming, you know, when Sat in Your Lap came out as a single in 1981. It was astonishing and it did feel as if boundaries were breaking in real time when you were hearing this music. So I do think they they had quite an impact at the time on people. You know, Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman and Laurie Anderson's debut as well. You know, these albums were quite unlike what had gone before. And what was interesting is that some of these artists, obviously Kate Bush, I love her late 70s albums, as I think we discussed in 1978, Lionheart, one of my favourite albums of that year, if not my favourite, absolutely beautiful. But she completely reinvented her vocabulary on The Dreaming, partly influenced, it must be said, by, I think, Gabriel's experiments. And it it was amazing how they'd ripped apart their musical vocabulary and put something together again with technology. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of artists were listening to that. I remember when we were in the studio with Brian Pugsley, who worked with The Shaman and worked with Björk, and he was saying how influential those albums were on him, in, in just in terms of the use of rhythm, the use of sound. Um, you know, Rupert Hines' albums around that time, very similar, that there's attention to detail on every level, 
every texture, every rhythm. And I'm sure that, you know, that filtered through to some of the young bands upcoming. But, you know, listening to the Tears for Fears, what one of the qualities I think that allows it to survive is, as you pointed out, the lack of cool. Because actually as singers, one of the things I kind of like about Roland and Kurt is they're not putting anything on. They're just singing. And this was an era when very affected vocals were very much de rigueur, were very much the order of the day. And Matt Johnson, as much as I might prefer soul mining, he still has that slight post-punk affectation in the way in which he's using his voice. And Tears for Fears had none of that, which I think is kind of interesting. I think you're right. And there's another album this year, of course, that uh, by a band beloved, very beloved to us that is also, I think, simultaneously sometimes out outside of the zeitgeist and the time it was made, but is also using the technology of the day. Mm. And that's XTC's mama. And, it, you yeah. know, I think a lot a lot of people now it's become XT, their favourite XTC album. Is, I've lost count of the times I've heard <laughs> people say, oh, Mama's my favourite XTC album, because it was considered an incredible failure at the time, you know, um, coming on the heels of English Settlement and the fact the band had retired from touring and there was no hits on it. A band that just a band that just seemed to you know kind of exist in their own parallel universe, uh, and and this is the beginning of that in a way, isn't it? I think you're right. I think this is where XTC become more themselves, and they're gradually unmoored from the pop mainstream. Because I think before this point, they're a very celebrated, inventive post-punk band that were very much beloved of the music papers, and this was almost where they're kind of slipping away. And the music papers saw them as willful eccentrics. And again, it's an album I bought at the time. It's an album I loved at the time. I was particularly drawn, you know, the single Love and a Farm Boy's Wages is one of my favourite XTC pieces. But there are there are a lot of moods on this and there are a lot of um, quite subtle experiments. You know, it, it is more bucolic. It is more melancholic. It is more melodic. But it still has some very powerful rhythmic moments. It plays with dissonance. And it seems to me, this album, to be XTC Unchained. And I, I realise that, you know, the technology to a certain extent defines it. And that's a, a characteristic I actually quite like, um, you know, the use of the fair light and so on. But it feels to me like this is the band set loose and kind of finally becoming what they actually are yeah i mean this is this is the first time we hear xtc attempting anything you might call electro pop you know with yeah. with, with wonderland for example uh, which is not something you could have imagined them doing on black sea or, or english settlement can we just backtrack a sec tim because we did we did mention it briefly in passing but i want to go back to it because i think this is Another of those albums that's almost a quintessential album for this podcast, which is Ben Watts' North oh, Marine yeah, yeah. Drive. Because I know we both absolutely adore this record. And again, it's a record that almost seems like a complete anachronism. It must have seemed like an anachronism at the time. But it's a record that probably not a lot of people know. Now, Ben Watt, people will know from Everything But The Girl, which is the band he's, he formed with Tracy Thorne, his partner, um, shortly after making this record. But he made this record, was he like 18 or something when he made he this record? He was really young. I mean, he made an EP about a year before called Summer Into Winter, which is still my favourite thing that he's ever done. And... He always claimed that he got the deal because he'd read that Mike Alway idolised Jurity Collum and John Martin. So he put together a demo that combined aspects of John Martin and aspects of Jurity Collum and got the deal. An EP, Summer Into Winter, resulted Robert Wyatt guests on it. And it's very fragile, very beautiful. There's even an instrumental on there and North Marine Drive is kind of an extension of that with maybe a slightly stronger John Martin influence than Robert Wyatt or Jurity Collins. I love the Summer Into Winter EP too, but I think that what's different about um, North Marine Drive is also the introduction of those kind of jazz chord voicings yeah. he's using on the guitar. Um, but, you know, if you had to describe it, I think you've done a really good job. It's almost like John Martin filtered through sort of Jurity Column, isn't it? Except that there is also this um, almost bossa nova sort of sensibility sometimes yeah, yeah. of the jazz. You know, Antonio Carlos Jobim kind of like, you know, chord voicings on the acoustic guitar. But I think he made the record in like a couple of days. It's very low budget. 
It's very intimate. It's very organic. It's completely an anachronism. In so many ways, it must have stuck out like a sore thumb at the time. But it's a record that sounds completely timeless in the way those classic John Martin albums and the way those classic Juriti Column albums sound completely out of time and timeless. I adore this record. Um, I think, would you agree with me? This is almost like the kind of quintessential The Album Years record in a way, oh, isn't it? Like, God, much yeah. like, for me, it's the one that goes with the Virginia Astley album. Yeah. Uh, it has that same bedroom school piano aesthetic. It's very naive. It's got that yearning quality to it. This is a, uh, let's face it, this is a boy who is yet to experience a lot of life. And it's very, very touching, very touching for that reason. Very much so. And there's a purity to his voice. I mean, the closest really is Robert Wyatt in the sense that he has that, that slight southeast accent, that real vocal naivety. But it, it, it's a lovely voice. There's something tender about it. And that's an interesting thing that, you know, Such Hunger for Love and um, North Marine Drive are very much cherry red records. But one thing I guess Such Hunger for Love by Kevin Hewitt doesn't have is tenderness. That has vitriol. You know, that's relationships that have gone sour. Whereas this is all about yearning, hopefulness, life to come. There is a kind of, yeah, blissful naivety about it. And like I say I really like the purity of his voice on it. I find it incredibly touching. Even now at my age, I still find it incredibly touching and, and, and very relevant. Um, it's almost like he was old before his time. There's something about the, uh, being an old soul in a very young body that seems to come through and permeate this record. And, and he never really did anything like it again, you know. And although you can hear, as you say, the jazz voicings came to play in Eden by Everything But The Girls a year later. And... Even when you listen to things like Walking Wounded, which I think is a, is a beautiful album that um, Everything the Girl did in 1995, and they were adapting drum and bass style rhythms. But I remember him at the time saying that he partly heard a kind of bossa nova skittering quality in the rhythms of drum and bass. And you can actually hear this, that he's still utilising similar kind of chordal richness. You know, these are very beautiful albums, even when they're rhythmically pummeling. Yeah, I guess he did, he never did anything quite as naive or innocent as as this again, and perhaps he couldn't. You know, you you, no, you can't no. you can't you can't fake that. Okay, Tim. So let's let's go back to your um, your elsewhere list. Billy Bragg, "Life's a Riot" with Spy versus Spy. I, I you know I have this idea in my head of Billy Bragg, which which is the is the very stripped down, just the guitar and the very Cockney voice. I'm guessing this is. I'm guessing this is pretty much from this that ilk, isn't it? I mean, it's peak Billy Bragg. It is the sound that you imagine in your head. And it was quite fresh at the time. Um, you know, I remember him being on Ogro Whistle Test. Um, and I think the thing is that, again, with very, very little, he made it go quite a long way. And, you know, contrary to the image of him being this kind of ranting political artist, there was also something of the sensitive poet in his work and he had um, a great sense of melody as well so I was always kind of a bit of a Billy Bragg apologist even though his music is um, very different from mine yeah I mean he, he was kind of a cheap a cheap guy to book wasn't he because you know he, uh, would, yes. he would pop up on all these he would pop up on these tv shows because he just kind of turn up with his amp and his guitar I mean it wasn't beautiful or lovely was it, it so it, it did feel slightly like you were being I guess that's where his reputation comes from, of being this very political sort of person. Yeah. Even when he was singing songs about lost love and these very tender, beautiful songs, it still sounded a bit like a rant, you know. Um, so when Kirsty McColl took that song, New England, yeah, yeah. you know, said, ah, Billy Bragg wrote that, what a beautiful song. But of course, his own version didn't necessarily have the same lushness to it. Well, do you know, it reminds me of in that respect, I was going to say, it's a bit like Bob Dylan, isn't it? Because if you think of early Bob Dylan, you think of a right. ranting political yes. artist. Yeah. And yeah. then you listen to those songs delivered by Nico, you listen to it delivered by Sandy or Denny or the Birds. Yeah. And you actually hear there are beautiful melodies, very strong, poetic lyrics. And I always kind of saw in a way that Billy Bragg was like an English Bob Dylan for the early 80s. Yes, that's a, that's a very good analogy, yeah. Because sometimes you hear a, you hear a song like Mr. Tambourine Man and then you go back and you listen to Dylan's version <laughs> and you're like, wow, that you know, they really they really gave that a makeover, you know. It's a great song, but I would never have thought to myself, that's a number one pop song, you know. Um Cocteau Twins, we've talked we've talked about the Cocteaus I think a few times on the show. Um I just adore them. 
second album, Head Over Heels here. This is a transitional record. This is a record that's kind of going from the more kind of early Susie and the Banshees influenced gothic post-punk sound. They're moving towards the dream pop era. It's a lovely record. Uh, I don't think it's their best. It is yeah. a transitional record. But if you if you like Cocteau Twins, of course you will you will love this record. It is a, it's a great transitional album, and they're about to make that shift, isn't it? When Simon Raymond becomes the permanent third member, and you're going to get, I think Treasure probably is the album where everything comes together. Yeah, absolutely, it's my favourite. Mm. Treasure and Victoria Land is that's peak yeah. peak Cocteau Twins for me. Uh, I, I felt later on they became almost too smooth yeah. and they lost their edges. So, again, that thing we've talked about in some of the other, other episodes where a band sort of hits a certain sweet spot where they're between two points. And I think they re- Cocteau's reached that point on the next record for me, Treasure and the EPs that came out around the same time, Echoes in a Shallow Bay, Tiny Dynamite, a- Achy Guinea. Mm. These are, this is peak. So Head Over Heels is well on the way to that. Um, if you're a Cocteau's fan... Fantastic record. Elvis Costello and the Attractions Punch the Clock. I think I've been very honest uh, on past episodes and said I'm not a, a, an expert on Elvis Costello and the Attractions, but I do know this record. Um, I didn't like it particularly. It's not, yeah. I do like some of his records. For me, this is kind of neither one thing or the other. Um, it felt like a very compromised record to me. What, you're, you're more of a Costello fan than I am, Tim. What, what's your take on this particular album? Yeah, very similar. Never a favourite. I mean, on one level, this is a great period for him because you know this comes after imperial bedroom which is one of my favorite elvis costello albums and he released pills and soap which i think is one of his greatest most experimental singles and it is on the album and he also of course wrote shipbuilding for robert wyatt and that is one of my favorite Mm. songs of all time and that came out this year the robert wyatt version and this album features uh, costello's version of shipbuilding and costello's version of shipbuilding actually is Really nice. It doesn't compete with the Robert Wyatt version, but then again, what does? And it's got Chet Baker on trumpet, which is a really nice touch. So for me, this album, it's really odd. You're you're entirely right. It's got Pills and Soap and Shipbuilding, two of my favourite all-time Costello songs. Um, But the rest of it, it's a bit like him almost having heard Tear to Explode's Reward or um, Phil Collins' Face Value and making his own brass-propelled pop album and one of the more peculiar aspects of that is that it was enemy's album of the year in 1983 which given how strong this year is and given how radical this year is it's quite an unusual album to to gain that accolade it's not a bad album at all i mean he does it very well there are a few excellent hits every day i write the book and so on but yeah it's not the costello that i personally gravitate towards and i think that he kind of towards the late 80s i think the edge came back in his music, you know, Blood and Chocolates, I think was uh, was a really strong album. But this almost seemed like Costello self-consciously embracing the mainstream. Costello is one of those artists that the music press felt could do no wrong. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of felt that there wasn't any objectivity when it came to reviewing a new Elvis Costello, I, Costello album. I remember buying albums. I mean, I've tried many times over the years with Costello. I'm not the biggest fan. I do like him. I have massive admiration for him. Some records I really like, some records I don't. But I remember very often being disappointed mm. with what I felt was the chasm between the rhetoric and the hyperbole that the music press yeah. wrote about these records and the reality. And I think this album is one of those albums for me. Um, what I love about Elvis Costello is that it seems like with every album, you're, he's kind of doing something a bit different. Yeah. And every album kind of earns, almost earns its place in the catalogue by not simply being more of the same. And it felt, it does feel like when I listen to this album, as you say, it does feel like he's attempting something whether it comes off or not is another matter, but it's nice that he's trying with every album, okay, this time I'm going to do this mm. because I've never done that before. Was it around about this time he also did a very traditional country record? Is that before That or was after? just before, I think. Is he, I think he did that just before he did um, Imperial Bedroom. It's called Almost Blue, wasn't it? That was 1981, I think. And I love the fact that he would do that because you can't imagine anybody else at this time, certainly not from the post-punk generation, attempting what is essentially a very traditional country album. I can't remember if we talked about that on one of the earlier episodes, but I, I love that about yeah, him. Yeah. And I love that about 
you know, the, I love that about the sprawl of his catalogue. Even if I don't necessarily like or love some of the entries in it, I, I love the fact that they, they are there. I, I think you can hear it even on the very early albums, you know, like Armed Forces. You know, he kind of effortlessly mm, brings in... Like. Yeah, Armed Forces, I think, is a great album, but he effortlessly brings in influences from ABBA, you know, amongst other things, which would have been considered really unhip at the time. But clearly he can hear a quality in the music of ABBA. And, and prior to that, of course, he'd experimented with aspects of Scar. And I think it's it's quite nice that, you know, from a relatively um, orthodox, almost punk singer-songwriter base, he really does travel quite a distance. Although um, I think he started off as a singer-songwriter. I mean, I've I've heard stories that he would be playing folk clubs in the early 70s doing Lindisfarne covers. Well, that would make sense. I know, I know he was a big Alan Hull fan because uh, he's in mm. the Alan Hull documentary. Alan Hull, the, the leader of Lindisfarne, he's in the, he's in the documentary talking oh, about... Oh, which is a really good documentary, isn't it? Yeah. The Jurity Column's another setting, the third album. We love the Jurity Column. We've probably spoken enough about them. I think it's safe to say this is not one of Vinny's best records. Of, of the first four, it's probably my least favourite. I would totally agree. The Ham! Patience. Love this record. This is almost like The Ham trying to do a slightly more stripped-down uh, guitar, drum, bass record, isn't it? But it still sounds quintessentially... It's quintessentially The Ham, isn't it? Do you like this record, Tim? I th- yeah, I mean, I, th- I think NTK and Patience, um, they're good, strong records. This is what he always referred to as his beat group era, as he was getting back to basics and the way that he did with an idea. And there's some fantastic material on both albums. You know, I probably slightly prefer the more experimental and sonically searching Future Now and even Sitting Targets, but I think these are really good albums. And as I say, some, some very powerful material. And the title track... Um, for patience, you know, patient. That track I think is particularly wonderful. It's brilliant. I, I mean, I get a little bit mixed up in my mind. Enter K and Patience kind of sort of joined together. Yeah. So I'm not sure. But has this album? Has this album got Labour of Love on it? Labour of Love. It's Labour of Love. <laughs> with one of with one of uh, the Ham's great sort of atonal lumbering riffs in the middle, he does. But this track actually, it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier about Eilis and Gaza when they thought they were making pop music. I always believe that Peter feels with Labour of Love that he's making a beautiful pop ballad that could be covered by Perry Como. Really? But then why would you why would you put that big atonal riff in the middle? Because it sounds completely natural to you and it's what you think that well, Tom Jones should be you doing. You can get the ham on the phone and ask him exactly <laughs> what. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in his head that is pop music and that's why we love him. Kissing the Pink Naked. Yeah. I know nothing about this, Tim. Uh, and I've, as we've already established, I've done I've done no research for this podcast. Tell us about Kissing the Pink's uh, Naked. What, sort of what is that? Electropop post punk um, had a great single called The Last Film. And like a lot of these bands, uh, you know, Random Hold around this year or making similarly interesting sort of disruptive electro post punk music, you can kind of hear that there's also a progressive ambition in the music. Oh, well, is this is this a band I should have had on my intrigue compilation? Then have I have I? I think I recommended them. I think I recommended them to you. It it sounds interesting. It sounds like exactly the sort of thing I should have included on the compilation. But you know, as we've established, there are big gaps in my musical knowledge. And talking of which, now Metallica's Kill 'Em All came out this year, which is the first Metallica album. Metallica, arguably the biggest metal band in history now, and this is where it all started. Now we don't cover a lot of metal on this show, and I think. Without wishing to be apologetic about it, one of the things obviously we do on this podcast is we focus on the things that we both kind of connect yes. on and we both feel passionate about. Otherwise, I could easily, you know, go off at a tangent about obscure industrial records for, you know, for a whole episode. And and you, Tim, similarly could probably talk about things that I'm not particularly interested in. So this is, you know, when we talk on this podcast, we're trying to find the common ground. I could talk now about the genius of Metal Militia on this record as being a very seminal, influential thrash track. But it would mean nothing to you, Tim. So, I'm guessing. So we won't. So we'll move on. But Metallica's Kill 'Em All came out this year. A, a fantastic debut album. Van Morrison's Inarticulate Speech of the Heart is probably a little bit more relevant in the sense that we... But I love this record. Yeah. Um, this, for, this, for me, is a real purple patch for Van, which started with Into the Music, obviously reaching an absolute peak on Common One, which I think we talked about in the very first episode we recorded, if I'm not wrong, yeah. um, as being one of our absolute, if not our favourite, 
Van record. And in Articulate Speech of the Heart, it's very much coming in the slipstream of that record, isn't it? It's a bit, it's a bit more orchestral, it's a bit more lush, a bit more cheesy in the best possible way. There's lots of saxophone. Yeah. He sort of went through a period, didn't he, after Common? I mean, Common One, I think, is magnificent. Although it's interesting, if ever you read any books on Van Morrison, generally... It's um, one sentence which ends with pretentious trash. You know, this is an album that is not beloved. We And we talked about that when we talked about this record, that we don't, I mean, we just don't get it, do we? We don't understand why this record is not held up as one of the greatest records of all time. And I think in the slipstream of Common One, he produced a series of really good albums that were perhaps that spiritual element of Common One, but with a more new age texture, I think, to the production. yes. Yeah, a, a little bit more. They've dated a little bit more in their sound, the yeah. Sonics, I think, than Common One. But tracks like Rave On, John Dunn, I mean, what? A, that's that's, mm-hmm. that's top-tier van, isn't it? There's some great stuff. And, and I think he carried on in this vein, really, until sort of, you know, No, no Method, No Guru, No Teacher, yeah. definitely. And probably slightly after. I mean, you know, there's aspects of it on Avalon Sunset as well, 1989. And after that point, he sort of abandons this quest. It's almost, a, it's entirely the 1980s, actually, that particular side of his um, output. You know, people talk a lot about the, the, you know, the early records, the Astral Weeks, the Moon Dance. But for me, um, this is right up there, this whole period, remarkably consistent, if not particularly, you know, we talked about Elvis Costello trying lots of different things. I don't think Van was trying mm. different things. Everything is almost like an aspect of the same thing, isn't yeah. it? But, but fantastic, you know, spiritual soul uh, spiritual soul music. Just a very quick mention to OMD's album this year, Dazzle Ships, which is mm. without question the most experimental album they ever made, and they paid the price for it commercially. Their their commercial fortunes dropped off a cliff with this record, um, having come off the back of Architecture and Morality. Dazzle Ships is a very very strange. This is a, this sort of album that should have been made by one of the German, uh, you know, electronic bands like Cluster or someone like that. Mm-hmm. But it was a big British pop act, pop act that made this record. Very strange record, as much about sound design and the Peter Saville design sleeve as it mm-hmm. is about, you know, pop songs. So a very brave, uh, you know, we love follies on this show, don't we? We love those kind of like willful follies, this commercial suicide this, I suppose, was OMD's version of that, although they kind of pulled it right back with the next record. Uh, so this wasn't a career ender in that sense. But it's a very, very noble, very experimental album by a band that were, at the time, until that point, frequently having top 10 singles. So um, I, I admire this record, perhaps more than I love it. Perhaps more than I love it. But I love the fact that it's in their, their catalogue. I, I like it. It's one of those albums that I think means you go back... To the band, you know, in some ways, I think it's an essential part of their catalogue and their yes. story. And um, and I think it would have kind of survived because I think as a kind of electro pop artifact from, you know, 1983 by British band, it's a fascinating album that I think had the band done nothing after this we'd still be dipping into it as, as a curio from that period. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing I'm always keen to emphasise. I, lo- I love looking at... Um, catalogues as a kind of holistic thing you know this is a whole you know trajectory of someone's career isn't it and isn't it fantastic that an album like dazzle ships exists in that catalogue you know and as we mentioned earlier elvis costello is probably another exponent of this idea that every album has a has a kind of place and a reason to exist in the catalogue and it doesn't matter if one record was more experimental and didn't sell, or if another record was very commercial and didn't sell, or was very commercial and did sell, they all become part of this fascinating continuum of work, which are all aspects of the same same person or the same band. Shriekback's Care. I love this record. Um, now, Shriekback was was um, Barry Andrews, of uh, who left XTC and formed this band, Shriekback. And Care is their debut record. Mm. And uh, it's a very, very unique sound on this record. Almost like a weird kind of um, intimate electro funk. They're almost impressions of songs. Are you familiar with this record, Tim? Do you, yes. Do you know yeah, what I mean I, when I say that? Well, it's a kind of it's electro funk goth, if that makes sense to you, because there's a kind of dark brooding quality. There's a proto goth element that I think that the reformed Shriekback have really tapped into. 
as well. Um, you know, there's something of that kind of talking heads element in the rhythms. There's something of that New York club scene in there that obviously New Order were drawing from as well. But the pieces tend to linger and they tend to be darker, I think. Yeah, a little bit of this certain ratio thing. Mm. This kind of very spectral spectral quality. It's hard to sort of, sort of, you know, hold on to the songs. But the sound worlds, when you're in them, are very compelling and fascinating. Um, Paul Simon's Hearts and Bones. Uh, June Ta- I'm just going through other records here on the list. June Tabor's Abyssinians. Talking Heads Speaking in Tongues. Um, do you want to talk about this record a little bit, Tim? You said here you want to talk about it, so... No, I think I'll probably put an asterisk next to it saying that I know about it and I like it. I mean, it's probably my favourite Talking Heads album, actually. Although I don't think it's as radical as what came before it, there's just a really nice feel. It's got quite a thin sound, which I think goes against it. And it's not as um, gripping in some ways as Fear of Music or Remain in Light. But I just think it has a lightness of touch and some fantastic material. So it's been the Talking Heads album that perhaps I've played more than any other, just on a, on, on a sort of level of personal enjoyment alone. So we've mentioned Tears of Fears, we've mentioned the, the, the Water Boys is the other album that came out th- this year with their first album, Mike Scott, uh, one of my favourite bands of all time. This is um, certainly no, by no stretch of the imagination the most important or best Water Boys album. It's essentially a Mike Scott solo album where he's just using drum loops to essentially... It's a very stream-of-consciousness approach to writing music in much the same way that Van Morrison uh, would write his music, and I think he was a big influence on Mike Scott. But you can see the seeds in what is going to come. Some of the the greatest records of the 80s for me were were to come from the Waterboys, Pagan Place and Fisherman's Blues particularly. And the same is also true of the next on the list, the Wolfgang Press, The Burden of Mules, a quintessential 4AD band. This first album is very strange and very different to anything else they ever did. It's very much in thrall to, perhaps too much, to Public Image Metal Box. It's almost like a pastiche of Metal Box in places. But again, you can see the seeds of what they're going to become. Something um, far more unique. Um, Wolfgang Press were almost like the, the 4AD's equivalent of Talking Heads, weren't they? This strange kind of, but a very British version, this strange kind of version yeah, of yeah. punk, avant-garde, funky rhythms, electronic music, and a very arch, uh, arch kind of vocal approach. I know you've always admired them too, Tim. Maybe you haven't been as much of a fan of them as I have, but, but you certainly have to admire them, don't they? They were very unique in, in their time. Yeah, very much so. And I think one of the things that they share with Streetback is that they're combining dance music with something quite dark emotionally. And in the case of Wolfgang Press, there's always something slightly unhinged and dangerous as well that you hear in the vocal delivery in particular. And I've, I, I can see the public image influence quite strongly, but I can also see that they were probably slightly influenced by Nick Cave and um, Birthday Party in the very early period of the band. And I sort of like Wolfgang Press when they really create their own sonic universe towards the late 80s, where they're fusing this darkness with a kind of cut-up dance culture. And I think they do it in a really interesting way towards the end of the decade. You know, Kansas, I remember being a fantastic single. Kansas is one of the one of the great singles of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, there's none of that dance sensibility in this first record. Mm. None of it at all. It, it is very fragmented, broken, uh, garage drum beats, howling almost like willfully ugly in places um they've not embraced that kind of dance floor friendliness yet at all and in fact it will be a few more eps and a few more albums where that really reaches a peak on albums like birdwood cage and queer which i think the the two classic late 80s wolfgang press albums but it's fascinating to see where you know where they start here and also one of the very very first 4ad releases as well uh, we're in the very very early years of 4ad well it's a bit like dead can dance's debut for 4ad isn't it you you can hear a logical progression yes. in the first dead can dance album you can hear that they've come out of Joy Division in particular, there's a strong influence there. But by the second album, they are absolutely cut adrift from any obvious influences and even from rock culture, you know. And I think with Wolfgang Press, 
by an album or two ahead of this, you you recognise the chaos and perhaps the the intensity, but very little else. Yeah, and the same with Cocteau's, as we as we said earlier. You know, again, their first album. If it had just been that one album that they released and they'd never done anything else, we would think of them as a kind of, you know, Susie and the Banshees impersonator band who made a kind of quirky one-off record for an indie label. But of course, when you now look with the, with the benefit of hindsight, you can see this, you can hear, I should say the seeds of something more unique that will come increasingly to the fore until they become completely their own thing. And the same is true, if you say, of Dead Can Dance, and the same is also true of the Wolfgang Press. And interesting that all those bands were kind of making their debut records around, I think Dead Can Dance is the following year, but it's a very, very watershed kind of moment in that label in terms of signing these bands that will go on, certainly for the 80s, to to define the very aesthetic of 4AD. Something that actually I think Ivo probably became quite frustrated in a way. And he ended up signing bands like the Pixies and throwing music to try and get away from that preconception that people have of 4AD. And, and I think that was reinforced by the This Mortal Coil albums that Ivo put together. And Absolutely. By, by the yes. artists he yes. chose to sort of work on those albums. But of course, as we said earlier, you know, Momus, The Happy Family, which was a kind of Joseph K offshoot with Momus singing and writing the lyrics, I think, wasn't it? And that was a very un-4AD, 4AD band. And it would have been fascinating to know, had they carried on, would they have developed in the way that bands like Wolfgang Press, Dead Can Dance, Cocteau Twins did into something quite spectral, something quite different? So you've got one one more major category on this list, Tim, which is mainstream. Now, I'm very curious about this because one of the albums you've got in this category, I think, could easily been something we talked about alongside Tears for Fears, The The, uh, ABC, which is the Eurythmics album, Touch. What is it that makes this mainstream to you? I think Annie Lennox was very much the quintessential pop star of the era. In some ways, she was almost the Adele of her era. And I think that that music communicated to a much, much wider audience, even though the Eurythmics started off as a slightly more left field pop band and you know i really like their debut album in the garden i think it's pretty good and sweet dreams has some some fantastic stuff on it as well um i think they connected with a mass public in a way that some of the other artists didn't they weren't quite as um arch they weren't quite as obviously influenced perhaps by the whole post-punk mentality that some of the other pop artists we were talking about were right although i'm not sure that's true i think i think they probably were as you say that first album um is it called in In the the garden Garden, Uh, it's it's definitely got quite yeah it's definitely got quite a lot of buzz but uh, but i understand what you mean because there's something about the eurythmics that, that she is a pop star in a way that matt johnson andy mccluskey Kurt, Kurt Smith and Ronald Oswald would never mm. be, could never be pop star. She had, she naturally had that kind of pop star charisma of a Madonna, yeah. um, who who was another artist that released, I think, her debut album this year, Madonna. You have you have on the list here, and I think you're right. I think Annie Lennox did have that natural mainstream pop appeal. Duran Duran, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. <laughs> I never, I never got. Duran Duran I never got them a few good songs I can hear over the years but I never quite I never quite believed them did you one of those bands that I always find quite entertaining good at what they did but never really hit home for me on any kind of emotional level nothing I could ever get um, too enthusiastic or excited about but they they always seem quite likeable. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the way I feel about it too. It's funny, we were talking about OMD and about how the fact that we love the fact that there's an album like Dazzle Ships in their discography. I think if Duran Duran had ever done something like that, I would maybe believe them a little bit more. I was always just amused by the title, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, really. I think as much as anything else, I, I, I loved that title as it was preposterous. And um, I think it was Joe Brown used to sing it on the Woolworths Christmas advert in 1983, where he was talking about all the albums you could buy from Woolworths. And in his inimitable style went, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, Duran Duran. 
I do like so again. I do like some of their songs. I quite like the Notorious album. Skin Trade is a great song, but I never completely was able to fall for them. There was always something about them that, as I say, well, I think it was well because I think from an image point of view, they sort of embraced the opulence of the worst excesses of Thatcher era. They were the antithesis of Billy Bragg. Mm. You know, I quite like Rio. I think it's got some pretty decent pieces on it. But the way, in, if you think of the video for Rio. And then you think of Billy Bragg probably standing outside of the Dartford Tunnel singing. They're very different images. And yeah. I, I quite like this idea of that being the split of the 80s at that point. Yeah. Or, Mor- or Morrissey standing outside the Working yeah, Man's exactly. Club in yes. Salford. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, talking of which, the last category you have here is nothing to do with albums. We are This is the album years, but Tim has elected this year because it's such a great year for singles to have an additional addendum to this podcast, which is singles of note. Now, we've already talked about some of them. Pills and Soap by Elvis Costello, Mama by Genesis, Shipbuilding by Robert White, but also... And we just mentioned them there. The Smiths released their first two singles this year. Uh, at least mm-hmm. one of which, for me, is a bona fide masterpiece, This Charming Man. Yeah. I mean, my favourite anic- anecdote about The Smiths... I-, I love The Smiths. One of the most important groups to me growing up, The Smiths. My favourite thing about The Smiths is that their entire career took place in the time between, yes, making 90125... And making the follow-up Big Generator. Their entire career. Uh, something like 15 classic singles, four classic albums, two amazing compilations full of, you know, great B-sides and session tracks. And then they broke up. And I love that about them. It's it's just this idea that they pretty much changed the face of, of you know, certainly alternative music. Mm-hmm. In an incredibly short period of time, when a lot of bands were getting into that mindset, Duran Duran, similarly so, but not, not only, I think it was more, more pretty much the norm. A lot of bands were getting into that mindset that they would fly off to the Bahamas or Compass Point Studios and spend three years snorting cocaine and writing and recording eight songs, each one of which would be released as a single with a three quarters of a million mm. dollar video atta- you know, attached to it. And the Smiths were the very antithesis of that in every respect, weren't yeah. they? Even even down to the very, very sort of colloquial, you know, being very attached to the Manchester, the sound of Manchester, the sound of the north of England. Um, Morrissey almost being like the anti-pop star. And yet, in some ways, um, ironically becoming a massive pop star, almost despite that. Uh, now, you actually grew up in the north mm. of Tim, so I'm, I'm guessing it was probably even more... <laughs> Uh, relevant to you or even more of a revelation to you uh, that a band like the Smiths could exist and and invade the pop charts, you know, be on top of the pops. Uh, Yes. How strange was that? The Smiths are odd because it would be going too far to say that they did what the Beatles did in the sense that they revolutionised music for a certain period in a very short time, a short space of time. Because I think obviously... The Beatles travelled a far greater distance, but actually there's there's something in it that they started in a similar way. That If you listen to the very early Beatles, who were very much a sort of stripped-down, four-piece guitar band, the Smiths were as well. It was a very stripped-down guitar band on the early singles, and they sort of injected the same kind of raw excitement that you got with some of those early 60s Mersey Beat singles. And then, of course, progressed and became certainly more um, experimental. But I think that, you know, aspect on, on the debut album, 1984, you know, you, you can already hear the band stretching out emotionally and different influences coming through. There's certain folk influences. Um, and they, lyrically, I mean, I, I was always drawn to the humour in Morrissey's work and also the fact that he was clearly well-versed in the kitchen sink films of the late 50s, early 60s, which I was a massive fan of. So it's quite nice that... Um, some of my interests were being reflected by an artist of the time. And as you say, it was it was the fact that it was so different from what was surrounding it that, that gained attention. And I think we've always said this, you know, during the time of supposed punk dominance, this was also the era that War of the Worlds was enormous. And so during the time of supposed Duran Duran dominance, this was the time where the Smiths, breakthrough that you know you always have this action and reaction i suppose yeah i mean meet his murder was a number one record 
You know, I mean, that that's an incredible, at least in the UK, that's an incredible thing for me. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I love the UK so much is that records like that could get to number one. Yeah. Amazingly. Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman could get to number two in the in the charts. I love that about and and you know, the Smiths is a great example of one of those examples where a real misfit, someone that should never be a pop star, that, that breaks all the rules, everything about him was wrong in, in inverted commas, gets together with a very accomplished musician and something magical happens. There's some alchemy there. Something incredible happens. And in a very short space of time, they kind of burn themselves out because they're so different that... It's not going to last. It's not going to last. And I think that, again, is where the Lennon-McCartney analogy is not completely inappropriate. There is something here of that, that it was almost doomed to fail. It was doomed to implode at some point because they are such opposites in the sense. But when they are getting it right for this short period of time, they are making something immortal. Mm. I love those early Smith singles. I mean, How Soon Is Now is, one of, is on one of the very, very early singles. So there's sophistication right from yeah. the very beginning. But yes, you're right. It'd be really interesting to have seen where they might have gone after Strange Ways Here We Come, which was obviously a record which was embracing much more use of keyboards and electronics and um, and becoming more lush and sophisticated in the production. It would be fascinating to see, you know, where the Smiths might have gone after that. But anyway, this first year we have the seminal, open, uh, the, the seminal debut single, Hand in Glove, and This Charming Man, which I think is one of their, their great singles. Also this year we have... Um, one of the most famous songs of the entire era by stealth because it wasn't a big hit song to the sirens by this mortal coil another quintessential 4ad song with the 4ad sound absolutely shot through and through it's become such an influential song hasn't it uh you know uh, without having been much of a hit at the time i think you know cropping up in movies every left right and center but also being covered by so many divas over the years sorry i was gonna say you can hear its influence on the likes of sigur ross as well that whole post rock movement the weightlessness the grace oh, it was a beautiful piece of music and in some ways you could argue this was where the cocteau twins developed their sound you know this is this mortal coil and it's under ivo's direction but if you listen to as we said before head over heels is a transitional album. It still has a strong element of Susie and the Banshees and the post-punk guitar music that the band had evolved from. This has none of it. And in some ways, perhaps this was the starting point for the Cocteau Twins that we know and love, that they learnt a great deal from it. Although, interesting fact about Song to the Siren, because I think uh, Tim Buckley originally played it on the Monkees TV programme, and there's a gorgeous very stripped down acoustic guitar version of it. Um, it eventually ends up on the album Star Sailor in 1970. But the first ever released version was by uh, Pat Boone. No way. Yeah. I did not know 1969, that. 1969, <laughs> Pat Boone does a version. Um, because the version with Tim Buckley, Tim Buckley's 1968 version of The Monkey Show was eventually released, but it wasn't released at the time. That's fascinating. I'll have to go and listen to that. I mean, obviously, it, it is a Tim Buckley composition, but it's one of those songs that is the definitive version is the cover. In, in much the same way that Nothing Compares to You, the Prince song, the definitive version is the Sinead O'Connor version. Yeah. The, this Mortal Call version of Songs of the Siren is the one that everyone knew, knew and most people fell in love with the song. And that is the version that people reference when they cover it. Not, not the t- Although the Tim Buckley version is really mm. good, but the This Mortal Coil version just takes it to another, uh, another level, doesn't it? it? It just takes it into the stratosphere. It's absolutely sublime, divine, one of the most beautiful three-minute pieces of music ever made. And, it, and again, it has been so influential over the years. As you say, certainly with post-rock, I think you're absolutely right there. This is in some ways where kind of shoegazer music comes from, where post-rock music comes from. It all starts. It all starts with Song to the Siren, This Mortal Coil. So, uh, uh, yeah, so a great single. And, and the final single you have on your list, Tim, David Sylvian and Ryuchi Sakamoto's Forbidden Colours, which is the theme to, to the Bowie movie, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Yeah. Lawrence, isn't it? Well, it's wonderful. Wonderful single as well. Yeah, gorgeous yeah. sweeping single. And once more, you can kind of hear that along with Ghosts, that's the turning point that leads to where Sylvian's solo career is going to go with the likes of Secrets of the Beehive in particular. And in some ways, I suppose, we were talking about 1983 as being 
the year where things are no longer quite as easily categorised or quite as obvious. And, and in this, you can almost hear that sweeping melancholy of 60s soundtracks, you know, John Barry for sure, but also Scott Walker, some of his albums from that period, uh, and even Dusty Springfield. You know, there's almost a kind of natural reclaiming of aspects of music that sort of been dropped for, for a decade or more. And I think that is is what is peculiar about 1983, is that a lot of bands are suddenly embracing pop, embracing melody, embracing excess in a way that's less self-conscious than it was even a year earlier. Well, and having big string arrangements, big orchestral arrangements. Um, again, maybe that's the Trevor Horn thing, because he, he kind of brought... I mean, I might be wrong, I'd have to look at the, the history books, but I'm guessing that a lot of that orchestration in pop came back with albums like The Lexicon of Love, ABC, which had come out the previous year. So it's almost like it's okay to have big orchestral textures on your on your pop yeah. records again now, uh, which possibly hadn't been hadn't been the case through through the whole punk, obviously through the whole punk and post-punk era. <laughs> So, Tim, we should wrap up. Having done two long episodes on 1983, we come to the crux of the matter. What is your favourite album of 1983 and what album do you think has been the most influential over the years? Hmm. Well, as we said, I mean, you know, that as a single, you know, you can hear Songs of the Siren in Julie Cruz and David Lynch's work, you know, Angelo Badalamenti. And, of course, Cigarettes, post-rock and so on. I'm going to go for influential, I think, possibly New Order, because I think they really anticipate what happens by the end of the decade and the early part of the 90s with that fusion of indie sensibility and dance music. In terms of the album that I most like, I'm probably going to surprise you. Go on. I'm going to go with Tom Waits' Swordfish Trombones. It's a fantastic it's, record. It's a wonderful record. One of the things we didn't say about it, relating again to this era of singles and hits, is that it's a very strange, very uncompromising album. But of course, it also had a hit in the form of In the Neighbourhood. So in some ways, you know, like albums like 90125 with your owner of a lonely heart, it was propelled by a single. But for me, I think it's the range of that album, really, that it does go from these very poignant piano ballads like Johnsburg. Illinois and tracks like Soldier's Things, which are heartbreaking, to some really quite brittle, brutal, rhythmic assaults on the senses. And I just think that it it covers a lot of ground in its um, 38 minutes. Yeah, don't forget Dave the Butcher. Uh, yes. As well. Queasy listening at his best. Okay, so that's great. I think anyone would find it very difficult to argue with your with your idea that New Order is probably the most influential this year. The idea that a band that had come from um, punk, post-punk, alternative, new wave background, embracing the dance floor and making one of the seminal dance tracks of the 80s, if not of all time, it's hard to argue that, that that is so visionary and so forward-looking that it kind of would leave everything else, in the, everything else this year in the shade in that respect. So I'm going to agree with you on that. Um, and also, I think you're right when you say Songs of the Siren has been quite... The Smiths, I think, had an influence for a time, although perhaps that influence has waned slightly over the years. I mean, if you think of bands like The Strokes and The Libertines, who were big for a time, The Stone Roses, it's hard to imagine The Stone Roses existing without The Smiths. Yeah. But people don't talk about those bands perhaps as much now as they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So perhaps the influence of The Smiths was very prevalent for a time. Yeah, Arctic Monkeys probably as well, I guess. Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, again, very hard to imagine the Arctic Monkeys existing without the, the Smiths being the precedent. In terms of my favourite, because I'm a bit old-fashioned this year, I find myself going for Ben Watts' North Marine Drive, mm -hmm. Pink Floyd's The Final Cut, um, and the XTC album from this year, Mama, are probably the three I come back to, along with Swordfish Trombos, the albums I come back to the most. And neither of them, also none of them, are albums you could say are particularly innovative or forward-looking. But in terms of just albums I enjoy, those are the three. 
those are the th- all the four if you include they'd the Tom certainly Waits. be there I mean the final cut was very much a close run thing for me and the Ben Watt and Virginia Astley albums from this year are all time favourites for me so there's quite a number of albums this year that I still hold dear it, it was a difficult choice as always yeah, and the Virginia Astley again is another album that I would. I think for me, it's that between that and the Ben Watt album, they feel somehow to occupy the same space in my mind. I just have a slight preference for for the Ben album. So there we are, 1983 in two extended episodes. Uh, as we said at the beginning of this particular half of the episode, we're, we're finding it very hard with our verbal diarrhea to to make anything less than a Tales from Topographic Ocean uh, when we come to some of these years that we're, we're most passionate about. Tim, I think we should pick a year next that we don't feel there's much. Because sometimes that can be interesting too, can't it? You know, to pick, an al- pick a year where perhaps we're going to struggle to find albums we want to talk about. So what would you nominate as the next year, for example? I was going to nominate 1995, but I can think of a lot of albums already that I consider quite important. I thought that was quite an interesting transitional year for older and newer artists in the way that late 70s, um, early 80s was. But we could do... Another year, if you feel that that's going to yield too much. No, no. Let's go. With, let's let's go with your instinct. Let's go with 1995. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any albums from 1995. <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe there's a lot of music that I'm that I'm forgetting from that year. That, oh, that you're, I, you're going to be dazzled by it. You're, you're going to be as deeply dazzled as you were in 1983 by Bill Nelson's Chimera, which we didn't talk about, which I always thought was one of his better albums. Well, you didn't put it on the list, I did, did yeah. you? Oh, I've missed it. Off. <laughs> I love that record. Well, it's kind of a mini album, it is isn't a it? Mini it's, album. it's uh I love Chimera. I love Chimera. I love all Bill's music from this era. I love it. It's my favourite era of Bill. Good God, we missed out Keone Scarzi by Philip Glass, which is one of my favourite Philip Glass releases. Oh my God! Well, we have talked a lot about Philip Glass. Uh, in fact, if I'm if I'm not wrong, we picked Einstein on the Beach as our favourite album. From, we did from indeed. Whenever, with 1978, and you could argue that Keone Scarzi and Apollo were also very influential on film soundtrack music, if not pop music. You could hear the influence of those two albums for decades afterwards, I would say. You could argue and you have argued. I have argued. And I would concur. Let's call it a day there, lest we start dredging (laughs) up other albums we've forgotten to mention. I think we've done a pretty good, a pretty good job of covering a whole year. What do you think? I would say under the circumstances, capital. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back. Uh, it sounds like we'll be back with 1995 at some point. Who knows when? Yeah. Who knows when? But thank you very much for listening. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.